Hi, everyone. Welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your co-hosts, Jess Geyer, and with me is my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hi, Craig. Hello. And Hi. our <laughs> our special guest co-host. Oh, actually, uh, Craig, before I do that, you want to give yourself a little introduction? Then I'll give myself a little introduction. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Craig Campbell, um, and I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I make a whole bunch of role-playing games um, and occasionally pop up on podcasts and actual plays and all that fun stuff. And I'm 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 Jess. Uh, I am one half of Wannabe Games, and I also make TTRPGs and do this podcast now, although I've also done a podcast about Adam Sandler, completely unrelated to TTRPGs. <laughs> <laughs> and with us today is our special guest co-host, Chris Chalice. Hi, Chris. Hello, I'm uh, Chris Chalice. I've done work for Pendlehaven Press. I designed the Vanaguard story game for them. I've done my own um, stuff, such as Alice Black Blood Tribute, which is a Fate solo adventure. And I just recently did something for Pip Worlds called Pirates of the Dragon Spiral. So it's been pretty fun. I've just started publishing in the last few years my own stuff, and it's pretty cool. I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, we're all three of us, I feel like, in in kind of the same boat there. I, I, I've done things for other people and got started on my own now. Well, kind of on my own mm-hmm. with my partner. Uh, Craig, you want to tell us a little bit about what this podcast is before we jump into our first topic? Sure. Um, yeah, this podcast is intended to be kind of a look at GMing and game design um, from the uh, kind of point of view of, of three people who have perfect opinions and will never be questioned <laughs> by anybody ever um, <laughs> uh, uh, concerning those. And people. That, and that is to say that we've all three GM'd and we've mm. done some, some amount of game design as well. And so we're just going to kind of pop through a couple of topics about that and who knows where else we might go. Yeah, and our first topic of the day... Um, we're talking about heavy role-playing sessions in a game versus heavy mechanics sessions like those those grindy crunchy game sessions that we get into and i actually i i finished off my last game with my i I just moved out of state um so i had to leave my old gaming group behind i'm very sad about this yes i know i had such a perfect gaming group we met regularly everyone showed up the campaigns were terrific Mm -hmm. long-term campaigns Ugh. But last night was my last uh, like official game night with them. And uh, the, the little investigation that we were doing is it was kind of heavily focused around my character. I don't think that that was intentional for me leaving. Um, but in the end, instead of really like getting to a lot of battles or anything like that, we just had a conversation with the the quote-unquote villain at the end and we role-played out this ending and it felt to Mm. me so satisfying it felt way more logical at that moment to talk it out rather than start rolling dice and um like you know getting into the nitty-gritty things of mechanics and i it was one of the first times where i've had a resolution of an investigation or like an adventure that was RP focused and felt super satisfying like that. And I don't know, I'm just kind of riding that high for today. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. I love it when that happens. That's pretty slick. I mean, I don't know that I've had, I've had sessions where I've run games where we've been, you know, very heavy on role play, where we very, you know, mm-hmm. rolled very few dice or maybe even no dice. But I don't know that I've ever had one where it was like the finale of the of the campaign or even of like a short kind of mini campaign where it was all role play. It has to be pretty satisfying from the point of view of you've played these characters for so long, you know them so well mm-hmm. that it's much, you know, as for me at least, as a campaign goes along, I find it easier to slip into characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the longer you've played them because they, they become kind of a second skin until you really know them really well. And you know, all the other people in the group and the dynamic with the GM is there. Um, so, wow, that's very, very cool. Well, yeah, it wasn't like we didn't ever roll any dice or anything like that at all. There were a couple checks in there like, okay, is this person lying? What's happening? Like, mm-hmm. like little insight, stuff like that. Uh, but it was, it was really resolved via just a conversation where we were like, we can't beat this person. They're <laughs> they're not necessarily a direct threat to us right now. Although I'm sure because they're continuing the campaign without me, I might pop in occasionally, but I know it's going to come back and bite them in the ass that they didn't kill these people. <laughs> but, <laughs> but 
for me, it was so satisfying. So <laughs> do you think it could not be evil? <laughs> They're definitely evil. They're alien body do? snatchers. So. Okay. okay, yeah, that, Could that's you pretty bad. Not snatch bodies. Well, it seems like they're done snatching bodies for now. I don't oh, know. I'm, sh- <laughs> I'm sure there's no uh, uh, additional agenda. Definitely not. <laughs> in my recent game, I'm playing like the sweetest character in the universe, and she usually tries to reform bad guys rather than fighting <laughs> them. And sometimes it's worked out. Other times, not so much. Yeah, I, I I like those sessions that are I I, I love RP heavy games. Mm-hmm. I love RP heavy campaigns. I I I'm really drawn to. Although I got my start playing like D and D and stuff, which is it's very, you know, it's very mechanics. It can be very crunchy. You know, you're spending a lot of your time dungeon delving and fighting monsters and all of that and going through mm-hmm. these long combats. But I love games where you're investigating mysteries and learning about each other's characters and exploring relationships. Um, so for me personally, that's kind of where I like to lie. I, the uh, spectrum. I started my GMing uh, doing second edition D&D, but also GURPS. Oh. And for a while, I was really into kind of very kind of crunchy simulationist systems because it, it, they sort of scratch a certain itch. It's like, I want to put my character through this number machine and see how what happens and i can't control what happens but i want to see if i can make the right decisions and go through this like rules mechanics pinballs machine but as i've gotten older i've gone more and more into the narrative story games like uh vanaguard is nothing like gurps uh and it's designed very much where even combat is sort of optional uh, all kind of actions have the same weight and i've sort of fallen in love with that as i've gotten older but i can kind of see the appeal of both mm-hmm. I think there's um, there's an attraction to both of those types of um, you know situations where whether it be heavy on role play or heavy on on dice rolling mechanics because role playing games are you know in, in in addition to being a lot of other things they are both a game and they are acting whether mm-hmm. whether you're acting in first person and kind of portraying your character and speaking as your character or whether you're narrating kind of third personing your character and my character does this and my character says this and um and that so yeah like if you get kind of in the mode of you know in this game session we're we're, we're rolling a lot of dice we're rolling a lot, a lot of dice going to make sure going to see if I can win right cuz mm-hmm. you know dice dice have a you know you win or you lose mm-hmm. um, and, um and there's there's gradations of that but there's there's certainly a success um um, kind of a uh, goal that comes out of rolling dice. And so it becomes very much about the game. And so when you get in the mindset of like, I'm playing the game, I'm, I'm gaming the game, I'm playing the dice, um, mm-hmm. rolling the dice, doing the numbers, um, there, there's a certain satisfaction to that. And, and not every role player, you know, is into all of that kind of stuff. But when it, when it does come up, that, that makes for a great session when everybody's on board for that. There's also like an impartiality to the dice. In yeah, that. The dice don't care. Yeah. yeah. And, and that way you don't feel like I want, like my character got through this, but it wasn't because the GM was nice to me. Right. Okay. That's a really big thing. Like from a GM standpoint, mm. it, it can be like, like when you're rolling the dice, like, yeah, you might feel bad. Like, oh, sorry, but you all saw that. You all saw that happen. Mm. But when you're just doing role playing and if you're role playing as an NPC or, yeah. or 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 whatever you're doing, it is more subjective. It and you can feel like I have felt like this before as a GM, like oh, they're gonna think I'm such an asshole for <laughs> saying this thing or doing this thing or not believing them or going against them. Um and and that can be hard. And Mm. <laughs> it can also be hard sometimes like when your players are being real well the, their characters are being real jerks back to you. <laughs> like like you're playing you're trying to play an NPC and they're really nasty to that NPC maybe for good reason. <laughs> it, can, well, it can be It's interesting too cuz in those situations what I like to do as a GM is obviously I I talk to my players and so forth. But I've had a few players who like to be like I try to do a serious game and they're jokesters. Like they make a character who is a joke character. And the way I deal with it usually is I keep the world serious and they react to their jokes as any serious person would. And then afterwards they kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, I get this. This is actually rather important. Uh, So that kind of helps me out with that. Actually, that's another side note I was thinking too. 
one thing it's tricky with mechanics and role playing is especially if you get a game with that um, that has social mechanics. If you're doing a good role playing session, I personally don't want to stop and then roll a bunch of dice in the middle of a conversation to yeah. see how the conversation goes out. But I do like subtle mechanics where, say, you make some sort of argument and you have a token or something to spend. Or the GM can just say, okay, this will give you a bonus later on, where it's kind of like built in. So you get a mechanical sort of advantage, but at the same time, it doesn't, you don't have to stop the conversation to roll dice. Yeah, that that is nice. I, I've played both types of games where mm-hmm. you're like rolling a lot for your, your social stuff, or like where there's social combat in a game, really. Um, like, what do you guys think, too, of, like, um, social roles and making, like, when you bring role-playing to mechanics? Like, I want to say you have a shy player, and they're like, I want to convince this person of something, but I'm not very good at doing it. So they make a role so their character can do it. But on the other hand, like, there is a, a discussion in the RPG community that really shouldn't, like, persuasion isn't mind control. So you should have to basically like the NPCs and other people should have their freedom to do what they want, despite what the roles say. Um, I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable. Um, I mean, like in the first, the first game session or two, it, you know, you, you're not necessarily sure, you know, like, especially mm-hmm. if you've got new players that you haven't, you haven't played with before, or um, you're playing a game system that some people are just kind of new to, and they're a little hesitant. Um but if you, if, you know, like I've, I've played many a, a game where a, mm-hmm. as a GM and a player where you have like somebody who is more interested, they'll, they'll be, they'll kind of narrate their character third person yeah. and just say, my character wants to do this sort of thing. What kind of role do I have to make? And you let, let them make that role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the player who wants to just, you know, role play that out yeah. um, and have you react to it and everything. I don't, I think if you're, um, if you're fair about it and you don't just automatically just, you know, don't just give the role play only person, um, mm-hmm. everything that they're looking for all the time, just because yeah. they're role playing, it'll make the the player who's rolling the dice f- realize that, okay, well, I'm not being penalized by having yeah. a yes, no outcome from a role and the role player uh, focused person is getting everything mm-hmm. they want because they're role playing. Um, one thing I've done too is like, and it takes a little bit of getting used to with all the players and all the players, you know, everybody has to kind of trust each other. But yeah. if you know, if you can, if you know, you can do it. I've done this in the past too, where if you have, uh, sessions <clears throat> where we know it's going to be there's something you know we got something that's going to happen that's like the characters are at a a, a social event so obviously there's going to be a lot of role playing um, and the expectation is not that there's going to be a lot of dice rolling or combat or anything is if all if, if you as a gm just kind of let the players know before the game or as you're going into the campaign like say sometimes um in the middle of like role-playing stuff i may ask you to make a check and i'm not going to screech the, mm. the game to a halt for it i'm going yeah. to i'm going to ask you to make a check i'm going to tell you what the target number is and i'm going to move on to the next person with the soul with the role play stuff and then the next time we come back around you play appropriately to whatever it was you roll um i trust you to to like if you fail the role like now you you have to when i come back to you i, I expect that player to be like yeah. okay now i'm gonna bungle this horrible <laughs> situation i'm gonna say something inappropriate or i'm gonna give myself away or whatever mm-hmm. it is that is is the problem that right. they decide and that also kind of makes it interesting because the player gets the opportunity to decide how their failure manifests mm-hmm. um and, and to do it in a way that's interesting for their character. Cause like, you know, some characters, like if you play a character that constantly puts their foot in their mouth, <laughs> then, then when you come around and you make, and you fail that check off, you know, off camera, basically you come, when it comes back around, well, now you get to put your foot in yeah. your mouth. And on top of it, you get the chance, the player gets the chance to think about it for a little bit. They're not mm-hmm. on the spot. So they can think about like, like, what's the perfect way for me to botch this? I like that <laughs> strategy. That's a mm-hmm. good strategy to have. I think another way to kind of go into it too is from, and not like from like what the player or, or the character is doing, but your NPC's reactions to what the mm-hmm. character is doing. So they fail it. It's not that they weren't really persuasive. It's just that this guy is really stubborn right now, or like that wasn't convincing enough. Um, that, that That's more of like a, I, I, I don't know. It's just kind of a different side to it. And and I, I really like the strategy of, of giving them that time to think and then this is the consequence of what they're doing and how they're performing versus how the NPC is reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that worked the, the way that I just mentioned, like how the, how the NPC works. 
um, and reacts works really well with a system where there is like a already some social combat structure Mm-hmm. Um, especially if like you're playing a system where, where you can use like evidence as weapons, for example, um, like yeah. in clockwork dominion, um, like that kind of thing works. But, um, Craig, I, I, I love that strategy of giving them a check and then going around the table. Cause not only does it give them a chance to think about it, but it also gives everybody at the table a little bit of a cliffhanger to see mm-hmm. what's going to happen next. There's a little tension. Yeah. You always want to build that tension. One thing I like doing as well, especially with any kind of skill role, and I learned this when I did Western Games Star Wars with a wild die, because the idea is it's just a luck thing. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll let characters who fail, like a, say a social role or any other role, basically be like, they describe it, they do it perfectly well, and I admit they did an amazing job. But then I have something random come in to explain the failure. Like, for instance, the king looks at you and goes, wait a minute, you said your last name was Duncan. Uh, yes. Your father was this. Yes. He killed my grandmother. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, That would be really funny for like a a soap opera style. (laughs) And that's, that's a, and and that's a, that's, that works for roles. And I think it works something Mm -hmm. like that sort of thing can work for um, when you're dealing with like strictly role-playing too, where the player is role-playing, role-playing, role-playing. And if they say one thing that you decide, okay, like in the moment now, I'm going to decide that this NPC has a problem with that one thing that you said (laughs) um, and just increase the dramatic tension for that. And then that way, then again, the person who's only going to want to describe and roll roll some dice, you know, sees sees Mm -hmm. that, oh, that just blew up in their face. Um, So like role-playing isn't going to just get you what you want. So I'm here to save the day with the dice roll. How about for those times where like your, your players are role-playing so heavily with each other that you become like, you're a spectator in that moment. Like they're just going on and on. I'm okay with that. It's so good. Yes. Because inevitably one of two things comes out or sometimes both comes out of that is other than just the entertainment factor, right? You're just getting to watch it. It's dinner and a show. Um, One, they'll come up with some plot, element that they'll be speculating on that is <laughs> clearly much better than mm-hmm. anything you've come up with and now that's how the vampire is doing it um, mm-hmm. um or they will um find their own way to increase dramatic tension like in the moment mm-hmm. they'll get into an argument or one person will have a, a belief that it should go this direction and one person will you know we should do this um and it, like it just it it brings something to the game that you as a GM can't do easily, which is yeah. to create intercharacter dynamic. Yeah. And it links the characters better. They're, they're yeah. no longer just a bunch of strangers. And it helps. And that, and it that helps becomes them. a rivalry later. And mm-hmm. you know, it can it can build into all sorts of things. Or romance. <laughs> yeah, it helps them build their own characters too, which produces better role-playing results later on at the table as well. Those mm-hmm. are my some of my favorite times as a player too, is where I just get to kind of shoot the shit with um all of my fellow players in character. I love that. I, I love at the beginning of, of role-playing sessions where my GM says like, okay, why don't you guys have gathered up after your most recent mission and you're sitting around chatting. Go. <laughs> like yeah. I love that. I yeah. love to be able to kind of digest it in character a little bit. And then that kind of provides the fuel for later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as a GM, you do have to make sure you don't tune out, don't zone out from these conversations mm-hmm. because you want to listen for the signals of when number one, the, the conversation naturally starts dying because that's where you yeah. step in and help out and or like introduce like the next plot point or whatever your your role is as a, as a GM for your particular game or campaign. And also for when they're spinning their wheels, because like Craig said, sometimes they'll gather, they'll get this plot. They'll, they'll think something's happening that you, that they'll obsess over it and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And people will argue the same points over and over again. You also want to make sure that you're stepping in at that point yeah. uh, because frustrations can happen in those moments and and your your a, a good role for you at that moment is to kind of not be a mediator because you don't want to step in and 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 mediate necessarily but uh knowing when to get them out of that conversation and into something else so make something happen remind um, them that they haven't decided the matter at hand yes mm-hmm. you know, like they've got like, hung up on an argument about semantics or some minutia mm-hmm. and they haven't actually decided to do a thing that's going to move the plot po- plot forward give them a ticking clock 
one of the moves that I like to do in very dramatic high tension mm-hmm. games is just roll a random die in the <laughs> middle of their conversation because that freaks them out um or start it's like you're playing cards like just start flipping cards every once in a while um and then they'll try to figure out what that is and then they'll start mm-hmm. doing that's great for like like yeah. yeah they're sitting in the dungeon they're making all these plans they're trying to get into this room they're, they're trying to plan it perfectly they're never going to plan it perfectly you want to make them feel like, oh, we have to move now. And that's, it's such a dirty trick, but I use it all the time and it works every time. I have a button that I throw on the end of the random die roll that I do occasionally. Mm-hmm. Don't overuse it because it gets played, but I'll roll the die and you, you know, like you hear the die click, 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 click across the table. Yeah. And that, when the die's done rolling, you go, hmm. And then just yeah, like look, back, look back up at them and let them continue. And invariably, <laughs> invariably, one of the players who wasn't like really invested in the moment will be looking at you and will not break eye contact with you like for a few seconds. They'll be like, what was that? I uh, kind of thinking about that too. Like um, one thing about like role-playing heavy sessions is people are good role players to dominate like the entire table. Quieter players may not get a chance to do anything. So what I was thinking is basically, again, since we're talking about mechanics, setting up kind of like a pseudo, like a tool to help, like an accessibility tool. And what I was thinking is some, and I was thinking about this in one of the games I was working on, it's called bookmarks. And the idea is you give every player a bookmark and they put it on the table. And what happens is if they do something in the scene and they feel they've done enough, they hand in the bookmark. And it's just a visual tool just to see who feels they've done enough in the scene. And if someone does still has their bookmarking and asks them, is there anything you want to do? Or you can throw something at them um, just as a way to kind of visually keep track of who's done something in the scene and who hasn't. And now if the player is shy and says, I don't want to do anything in the scene, it's okay to hand in your bookmark without doing anything. But that way you can at least keep an eye on who's been like doing stuff at the table. Because again, with very, very heavy role-playing sessions, Occasionally, I've seen cases where quieter players are kind of like left sitting there. I I, I think that would be a really useful strategy um, at like a convention, like for mm. me at a convention setting where I don't know my players very well. And especially if I were working with like younger, mm-hmm. younger players too, I, I think that that could be an interesting tool to develop. Yeah, that's excellent. I really like that. Yeah. Um, how about a few uh, thoughts on what happens when it's nothing but dice on the table Yeah, for a session? Um, uh, the one thing that when I know that that's kind of the direction I'm planning to take it mm-hmm. and, the, you know, like obviously talk to the players, you want the players to know, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, in general that like, well, you know, sometimes we're going to just roll a lot of dice all yes. session long. Um, but then also give them the heads up on that. Like, especially in games where you've got, you know, if they're playing characters that have a lot of different abil- abilities, a lot of spells, magic items, all this kind of stuff, um, it's it's useful for all the players to know that's the direction you're going to go. Mm-hmm. So they have all their ducks in a row and they like, okay, I've got, I know I've got, my character's got these abilities and I've got points stored up for this thing and I've got these spells memorized and these magic items have charges and whatever all, all you know, whatever all there is so that they're really on top of things and in, in, in rather than suddenly they, they get two rounds into the combat and suddenly realize, Oh, this is going to be a two hour fight. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure like <laughs> what I've got ready to go. Like I haven't reviewed, I picked up a magic item last session that I haven't, re- you know, I haven't gotten all the rules on, um, you mm-hmm. know, all that sort of thing. So make sure that everybody's got all that. Yeah. I know when I ran GURPS, one thing I did is GURPS is really, really, really complicated at times. So as a GM, I was super familiar with the rules. Not all my players were, but I had enough and they trusted me enough to suggest things if they got stuck on something. So I was kind of like the computer game in the background running the engine. Yeah. Uh, and uh, another thing too, like cheat sheets, providing cheat oh, sheets yeah. for your players. Oh, those are good. Uh, oh, one, one thing though with cheat sheets, spell cheat sheets. If you are a GM who needs to use components, Make sure the spell sheets have all the components. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> some players will be ignoring. If you just say, like, as long as the component's only one gold piece, what will happen is some players will completely ignore the components because they don't know which ones cost one gold piece or not. 
and other players will be meticulously tracking this and never be able to cast any of their powerful spells. Sorry, I didn't have you from yeah. No, no, that's a really good point. But I, I don't. Mean, but I don't have five hundred gold, gold pieces worth of diamond dust. <laughs> okay, that player's me. Okay, I, I, I was that pedantic about it. There was a game where, like, we were playing D and D, and everyone else is casting stone skin, which costs like five hundred gold pieces worth of diamond dust. But because I'm a player and I don't want to screw up the other players, I don't say anything. But eventually, one of them died, and then. You know, my GM's like, hey, Chris, why don't you resurrect this person? I can't. I don't have the diamond dust. You see, <laughs> Rez dead needs it. You used it all with stone skins. Well, no, they didn't even use <laughs> no, it. Yeah. No one even thought to think of it. Yeah. I was the only one keeping track of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point from both a GM perspective and a, and a designer perspective. Like, your character sheets... Um, if you're a designer and your character sheet isn't serving as a good enough cheat sheet, essentially, because that's what your your character mm-hmm. sheet is. If, if it's not serving that purpose, maybe think about redesigning your character sheet. But as a GM, obviously, some of the things that you and your players are going to find important might not be on that um, yeah. or they might be you know, relegated to a, a, a smaller spot. Giving them the tools to to make that easier for them can speed up those dice heavy Mm. sessions oh yeah and also encouraging your players um i mean this is always something you should talk to your players about before Mm. you start a a game or even a session at that moment or even before a combat like i don't want to spend a bunch of time per turn and encourage um in 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 one way or another people being ready for their turn when it gets to them um, some people, I know this doesn't work for everybody. Some people put a timer, like you're playing speed chess, basically. Wow. <laughs> players. It doesn't work for everybody. That is, that is something that, that can be, um, really, really stressful and anxiety mm. inducing. But, um, uh, if you feel like your, your players are, are spending too long on their own turns, deciding what they want to do, looking at their character sheet, looking through the book. That's a conversation you need to have have with them, preferably not in the middle of the combat, but before it happens, or if it happens and you hadn't had this conversation before after the combat, be like, hey, listen, guys, uh, this is really, this is going to be a really fight heavy or mechanics heavy session. I need you to, uh, you know, be on top of things and, and don't just, again, zone out or fiddle with your phone in between turns. You need to be ready to go. Yeah. Whatever that whatever that means for that player, like right. with, with some players, like they yeah. they literally are looking stuff up, right, um, on like some database of of uh, magic items or whatever, right. Yeah, and just to correct something, when I said suggest actions to players, I meant I should have said translating actions. So if a player doesn't know the rules very well mm. or has a problem learning the rules, if they say I want to cast a powerful spell, I'll make a suggestion then, but I won't say you need to cast this spell here. Basically, be like a rules translator. But you're right, though. If they can learn the system and have everything prepared before their turn comes, that is key, especially in dice-heavy games. Um, as a GM, too, it can be very useful to make sure have a good understanding of what um, spells and magic items and cool abilities and psionics and superpowers and whatever, right? That mm-hmm. you've that the characters have, especially anything that will affect the nature of a dice heavy game. Like if mm-hmm. you, if you're playing for simple simplicity's sake, D and D, and you know, you've got multiple characters in the group that can summon monsters to fight for them that mm-hmm. can cast a bunch of healing. That's going to extend the combat that can put mirror images on everybody. So it takes forever for anybody to actually get their first actual damage. Like mm-hmm. that's that, that affects your, you know, you're planning for this two hour combat and suddenly it's a three and a half hour combat because the players perceive, oh my God, this is a big deal. And right. they unleash hell with all of their magic. And that's great. And they're having fun and they're using the tools they've been given, but be, be aware that that's going to come down the pike and, you know, just, you know, be aware I, of like, if you give people yeah. stuff, that's going to drastically change the nature right. of, of the dice heavy session. I think it's also fair game too especially when you know their powers if say a player's about to cast uh area effect spell that will hit them or the party warn them because their character would probably know that would happen 
Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen a lot of games where GMs use that as a gotcha, like for first time players, which is ridiculous. Like a first time player casts fireball, the GM goes hee 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 hee, lets them cast a fireball and wipe out half the party. That that's not good. Yeah. Uh, like if they should know better, fine. But if they're if they're the first if this is the first time slinging a fireball, let them know. Oh yeah, definitely for first timers. Like that's a surefire way to make sure that your your new player never wants to play the game mm-hmm. again is to. You're like, haha, you didn't know this rule, and and now now your your friends are dead. Like no one's gonna want to play a game with you anymore if you do that. Um mm-hmm. I, I think I think too, like that's that's one of the like at, if if you're imagining you're playing these, especially for for a traditional fantasy type role-playing game. Um, if you're imagining you're playing these heroes that are that are off going on grand adventures, they know all this magic and stuff, you know, it they're they have way more experience with the combat than your players would. Uh, your players are going to need some time to think about what the mm-hmm. characters would do and things like that. And it is important to give them a little bit of time. Craig, Craig, you mentioned something um, there about the, are they having fun? And if the answer is yes, you're, you're doing things. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, just check in with them too. If, if you feel like things are dragging and it's not fun for you, you're also one of those players, but um, if you don't mind it and everyone seems like they're really enjoying themselves, have at it roll dice all the live long day i also think too you need and i think craig got into this as well you need to let them know what kind of system they're working or like a friend of mine for instance said he didn't like gerps because he played a swashbuckler once and he jumped out from cover and ran a bunch of crossbowmen and they just like got it like they fired a bunch of crossbow balls characters dead and i i mentioned him well that's how GURPS rolls. You have to be more tactical because he was used to D&D. In D&D, uh-huh. you can run over and you don't have to worry about looking for cover. In GURPS, you would have to sneak around and try mm-hmm. to get them before they hit you. But you have to make your players know the difference, especially if they played a bunch of a game where things would work differently. Also, combats can get very, uh, when you get heavy, heavy mechanics like that, can get very long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be hard sometimes. I know I've run into the problem, like, you know, finding like, where's a break, where, where can we take a break and not destroy the tension of, mm-hmm. of, of, yeah. a, of a combat? Um, and that's where I, uh, say mini cliffhanger, hmm. um, yeah. is, is, you know, have, don't have the, just off the top of my head ideas, uh, don't have like the, 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 the right-hand man to the, the to the evil bad person is there and they have the fight going on along, along, along. And then halfway, when, when it looks like it's going to be, eh, it's like halfway through the fight, that's when the big bad shows up um, and the, the evil sorceress comes rolling in and, okay, and on their turn, pause. <laughs> or this the yeah. this isn't even my final form moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or yeah, anything that kind of ups the ante kind of, partway through the story and then pause on on there on on the, the on the thing that's going to mess with the players like pause on the bad guy's action or the monster transforming or whatever yeah um, or like right before they attack so even if mm-hmm. you do take five minutes and everybody steps away from the table they're thinking about like oh my geez what's going to happen next? yeah and it doesn't yeah. sap it doesn't sap all of the tension um and expectation out of the game whereas if you just stop at any random spot it's just like oh well now we just you know like you come back to the table and you're like all right whose turn is it your turn yeah let's go or like at at incredibly low points too in the combat are good places to stop like like if you're playing D &D and someone rolls a nat one that's a great spot to stop yeah yeah like okay let's go take a quick break and then you can think of the fun thing that will happen to them you as know, a consequence <laughs> you know what in, in fifth edition D, you know where the the best but also worst place to stop the place that will get your players going oh my god is when the dying character is on is about to make their third death save oh, oh, no. yeah. then you say and we'll take a break <laughs> yeah yeah oh, think man. about like where the commercial break would happen Dun, a, dun, dun. Yeah, like where would the commercial break happen if this were yeah. a TV show serial? When the paladin is sputtering their last breath. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so I would love that as a player. I would absolutely I would love that as the dying player too. Yeah. Um and then then too, I would like have a chance to think about like what what would my last words be? <laughs> I better better prepare, better start rolling up my new character in this break. <laughs> yeah, I I I don't mind some of those, those, um, you know, really roll heavy sessions. I think, I think where it really starts to slow down is when you're playing a system 
where the GM is also rolling dice too, particularly mm. in a system where the GM's rolling dice for every NPC that they're controlling, mm. that can really slow things down. So the more prep, and this can be difficult for people like me, and I, I, I go into things pretty light prep, um, but, but the more prep you can get done ahead of time, the faster it's going to be on your end. And you're kind of setting that example for your players too, if you want a, a quicker, you know, more rounds in a quicker space of time. Um, but a lot of virtual tabletops, you don't necessarily have to be playing virtually, but they have those mechanics already set in. So you just have to click a thing and mm-hmm. then it will do all the roles for you and do all the calculations for you. Um, figuring out the best way for you as the GM to track all of your, your NPCs, your enemies, your, your traps or your whatever, whatever you're playing, um, whether that's a, a notebook or like a, like a sheet of grid paper or um, a, a, a technological aid, even if you're playing at a table, those, those virtual tabletop aids can be a lifesaver <laughs> like you don't have to do all the math for me i can't i can't do subtraction in my head are you kidding me that's gonna take five minutes i will i will let the calculator do it for me um so figuring out the 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 that prep um anything you can do that will make your job easier at the table and faster at the table is good for you as a gm i think well and also i think avoid doing rules debates or discussions mm. in the game during game time. I've played a bunch of games where we've kind of like stopped, for example, and argued the width of a blade barrier. Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't need 45 minutes of waiting while we discuss how wide a bar- blade barrier is. <laughs> I, I don't care. I just want to get moving. No, that would be a fun game to design would be the rules lawyer game where you're yeah. in a court and you're just deciding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I think in those cases, I think it's okay for like the GM to do a spot rule with the understanding that you'll come back to it later and may change in another game once it's solid off. Like that's I think those kind of discussions and debates, if you're not sure, are good for office hours. Oh yeah. Yep. Um and plus you, you don't want to be having long arguments at a table mm-hmm. anyway. It 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 never I've never seen that go well. um i think uh now might be a a good time to transition into our our second topic what do you what do you two think no there there was a lot of i think we should argue about it for five minutes (laughs) (laughs) great transition Uh, greg (laughs) no i think it's perfectly reasonable get out your champions books we're gonna discuss (laughs) (laughs) um and i guess we're looking at now from a design standpoint the idea of kind of traditional um versus narrative slash story um game style and this is we're i guess we'll we'll take a particular kind of tack on this and and have our discussion um you know there's there's we could we could have a a half hour debate on what is what what does traditional role-playing game mean um but I think at, at, at its core, without getting into too much um, detail and argument, traditional game is, you know, similar to things that were developed in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, mm-hmm. early 90s, where it's, you know, you've got um, uh, a, a, an array of stats and skills. Um, there's usually something that tracks your character's life. Um, there might be hit locations and things like that, and, and then mm-hmm. various defenses. And there's a lot of um, dice rolling that is, a lot of your dice rolling leans toward you succeed or you fail. Yeah. Um, and then story and narrative um, style design is more there. Well, there's a lot of those components might be there. You could have a whole bunch of stats and all that sort of thing, but it's usually there's, there's gradations of, of success and failure. There's, mm-hmm. you know, failing forward, there's succeeding with a cost um, there's failing, but still getting a little something um, out of the story. Um, and there's often less uh, often less, um, focus on uh, whether or not a character dies and whether mm-hmm. or not a character gets severely hampered um, in ways that aren't tied to emotion. Yeah. Um, in like, it, it, you know, it's a question of whether a character is physically hampered, can't see or whatever, where, you know, narrative and story tend to be like, well, your character feels bad. <laughs> like they, They're embarrassed or they're scared. Um, and it's more emotion and um, mm-hmm. character driven kind of stuff as opposed to something that would slow down a combat yeah 
in a, in a physical sense. I saw a really interesting tweet today, actually. I can't remember who it was or the exact wording, but um, they were talking about how they, they, they like stories. They, they, they like stories in their games and in stories, characters don't just die for no reason. I mm. don't, I don't know who said that. Um, but, uh, I, I, as, as I've, a, I've as, seen I've seen it bouncing around Twitter today, literally to the discussion of whether or not death is a um, an important part of the game. Is it you know like if, if there's no threat of death, is it worth having X Y Z? You know, is it like the the argument that I saw with from, from one person was like, well, why climb the cliff if you can't fall and die? Mm. Um, what's the point of having the cliff in the story? Um, well, you could yeah. like you might not you might not get to the top in time. And your friend may not be saved. Right. And that's a narrative thing. Whereas a yeah. traditional game would probably focus on whether or not you got up there at all. And it would be, it would be mm -hmm. perhaps geared more toward, oh, well now your character fell and took a bunch of damage and they're dying and they need help. And mm -hmm. um, whereas a story game might, the design might be more about like mm -hmm. the internal struggle of like what it was that you lost because you couldn't get up there fast enough. Yeah, if you're if you're making a narrative style game, you really do have to know narrative structure and what yeah. what that means and and arcs. So if you are, um, I mean, you, you kind of have to know that too for making a traditional style game, um, mm -hmm. because you want to always think about the kinds of stories people are telling, mm. or like the kinds of games people are playing at your table. Um, but you, if if you want to make a narrative focused game you have to think about the arcs that the players are going to go through. So mm -hmm. really have to put that first and foremost, like what are they doing? What are they learning? What is the end goal of this? Um, and, and then design around that. You're still designing mechanics and things for, yeah. for a narrative style game that like, even, even if it's not rolling dice or doing math or anything like that, like the, the decisions that people are making, um, that that's a mechanic. Um, that that I mean that's your your the things that you are designing are the mechanics. <laughs> that is, and, that is what it is. Also, like kind of feeding those mechanics in the proper theme. Like, right. um, if I were to do like right now, I'm reading Iron Sworn, and the mechanics there are designed very much to evoke a particular feel. But I would never try to play Golden Sky stories in Iron Sworn because. That, that's not what Iron Sword is for. Yeah, I mean, I mean people might try, and, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, you you wanna you wanna if you're if you're doing that narrative style game, like you wanna make mm -hmm. sure that like that your game is is appropriate mm -hmm. for that. Like I just play tested one of Craig's games, and I I think like the 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 the, the mechanics that are in that game really work for the kind of story that's being told and i my, my characters were never in danger of dying in that game that wasn't a, a, a thing that could happen I, I can't believe people are having a conversation about whether or not if, if, you, if you don't die if you can't die what's the point like what do you mean i think <laughs> yeah i think it harkens back to kind of like the old days where you basic they, they see it as essentially the only way to win is to survive because it's based off sort of like the old kind of Dungeons and Dragons, right. Dungeon Crawl. You win if you survive with all the treasure. That's the end game. And you don't go farther than that, where uh, other than collecting power, for instance, living well, to collect and, and power. You, and you can play a game where like, oh, there's emotional involvement and yeah. my character gets a love interest or has a yeah. rival that they have to square off against or they finally, you know, prove themselves to their parents or whatever, you know, emotional stuff you want in there. But ultimately, in order to do any of that stuff, they have to survive. Mm -hmm. Right, right. You can't have a story if your main character dies right there uh, in, in act one. <laughs> that doesn't work. Um I actually wrote an article, uh, a blog post called Character Mortality and why some people like high mortality games versus low mortality games. And I define mortality as in the point where basically you can no longer play that character. Like you can't get resurrected or anything. That character's done. You have to make someone else. Mm. And it, I, I came up with it. It was one, the challenge. Another part of it, like why people would design, say, high mort games, and this is a weird way around it, where they want a game that where violence is used as a last resort. So they try to use mortality as a stick 
to prevent people from choosing violence. Yeah. But I don't think that works because usually it, if you go that way, it just ends up people are like, ha, I can survive this. I'll keep hitting the big difficulty button. You'll see me survive. Yeah, I, I, I can. I, I like playing games where where like if you're in a combat, you can die because I mean, mm-hmm. if you were if you're going out guns blazing, yeah, uh, like that's obviously in real life going to you were going to have some consequences there. You could get shot. Um, uh, but there are as like as a player from a player standpoint, there are times where I feel like, man, if my character died here before I got to learn this, before I got mm-hmm. to do this, it would feel so unsatisfying to me. Yeah. And oh, then there have that. been times too, like where I've gone into a combat and I've like done this, this, this daring action. And I think if I die at this moment, it would be so perfect. It would be the best ending to my care. Like going out in this, in this, like trying to save all of my friends, that would be so perfect. Um, but yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know. I can see both sides. I can see both yeah. sides of that. And here's where it kind of, I think, marries weirdly. Are, are both of you aware of the uh, anime series Appleseed? No. Okay, well, just a quick note. Appleseed is basically about a utopian society. And one of the characters comes from like the Badlands, gets pulled into this sort of like utopian society. But uh, they need to do various dangerous police actions. And the idea behind it is it's all a commentary about how corrupt the utopian society is, but it's very much, you very much feel like it's a tactical setting. Like if you make the wrong move, you're dead because there are like super cyborgs everywhere and she's not a cyborg. Uh, But on the other hand, um, there's a lot of character driven moments, like with her partner, who's a full cyborg with her and how she fits in the society. And there's all these neat kind of role-playing elements, but it'd be hard to make that a game and marry those two. Because on one hand, you need it to be sort of very crunchy and tactical, but at the same time, you want to be able to explore these bigger themes. And it, it'd be hard, that would be hard to do in a role-playing game, I think. Yeah, I, I think you kind of touched on something there that that you can think of as a game designer. Um, when deciding whether or not you're going to do a more traditional style or a narrative yeah. style. And that's whether or not you're focusing on overarching themes and mm-hmm. plots, like like in a traditional, like like take D&D, for example, yeah. there's usually like some big bad at the end of this campaign and, and the, the plot is going from learning how to defeat them and, and finally defeating them or failing to at the end. But regardless, it doesn't matter who who makes it to the end that's that's mm-hmm. likely what's going to happen um versus the interpersonal like smaller stories with like the 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 characters going through things and that's the important mm-hmm. part where if this character were taken out and replaced with another person it wouldn't work anymore yeah. so you have to think um like and design around that um I guess I'm I'm curious right now too. Like, what are some of the specific differences in mechanics from a design point that you two have seen for narrative games versus more traditional style games? Well, I've I find myself being much more like Mergers and Acquisitions. The first game is very it's pretty traditional, um, and Capers is pretty traditional, and then like everything since then is kind of leaned narrative, um, like. Low stakes is effectively what we do in the shadows, the role-playing game. Um, so there's no reason to kill characters. There's no reason to have uh, to make checks to determine whether or not they um, do a bunch of, you know, to do everything. Like, they're, they're, you're not going to roll a check for everything. There's failure is unimportant in, in, in most of what it is because they're going to fail a lot because the characters um, all have flaws that tend to bite them in the ass. And that's how the drama is and, and the comedy are, are both built in that series in the movie and, and hopefully in the game. Um, so the character, you know, the, the, all the, all the rolling that you do with the mechanics has to do with, can your character uh, uh, succeed at things that they're really bad at when they need to? Um, and can they, uh, ca- can they gain clout within the, within the house and be, you know, mm-hmm. kind of have, um, be able to lord it over the other characters. <laughs> those, those are ways that you determine you, like, if you can do the, one of those two things, you get to have kind of a good ending to the mm. story for your character and it has nothing to do um, 
with character death or with making checks for absolutely everything. Um, good strong hands um, does uh, like you can die in good strong hands and, and for those unaware good strong hands is is kind of the never ending never ending story labyrinth willow mm-hmm. um uh, legend those types of movies um as a role-playing game and built in such a way that like the more really great success you have the more the void the evil malignant entity notices you and tries to corrupt you and it slowly drags you um into corruption and that gives you power um but if you gain too much of that then it removes you know like your character falls to the void and becomes um an agent of the of the the destructive force and um so there's but but you do make checks like there are you know you have a stat for kind of that'll kind of cover anything um and you're making a bunch of checks um although not as many as you do in a traditional role-playing game um but you know success versus failure or partial success or anything like that is part of what's going on, but there's also this underlying other mechanic that is like, okay, no, now your character is slowly becoming more corrupt. How does mm. that affect how you role play the character when you gain this power? Now, like suddenly, you know, you could there, you can gain a corruption ability. Uh, they're called corruptions, like a power, a dark power that, like, in order to use it, you have to send yourself for even further down the shadow track and like closer and closer to even more corruption. So like, you've got this cool thing you can do, but you can only do it so much mm. um, because it's going to tempt you down that road. And whether, whether or not you are going to, you know, ultimately, even if you don't, you know, the character doesn't die, you lose, the, you can lose the character and even worse. It's not just losing the character, but now the GM gets the character mm. and gets to plague the group as the dark, evil, corrupted version of your character. Um, so it's all narrative story. It, it, there's there's traditional elements and there's pass and fail and all that, but there's um, you know at, at some level of um, thematically what you're trying to do with the game. And that's one of the things with narrative and story games. I te- they tend to have a very strong theme. Like this is what the game is about. Mask is about being a you know teen superhero yeah. and all of the angst that goes along with that. Uh, you can do anything you want with Apocalypse World, but you need to prepare the game beforehand. It's good though. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, your, your story and narrative games tend to be like, you know, if you've got a strong enough theme, all you need is really just like a couple of mechanical kind of mm. things that help to reinforce that um, and make sure that they're, they're things that come into play, that they don't just like occasionally happen, that there's something that's always going to kind of make an appearance. Um, and you can build um, whatever that, you know, narrative arc is or whatever that emotional weight is that you're trying to convey in the story. I think a good way to kind of marry those two elements together, if you want something good to study and you're not super squeamish, is to go watch slasher movies. Mm. Because in slasher movies, a lot of times only one person survives at the end. You got the final girl at the end. Um, and and uh, other characters, other main characters can die left and right. And the story continues because there's still something marching on. Um, so you have these, you have a, a character who is, and characters who are going through things. And, and usually they're in a, in a really good slasher. There are some emotional stakes. I'm in the middle of watching Fear Street from on <laughs> Netflix right now, which is really good. I highly recommend. Um, and um, it, it is always to me, at least when I'm watching a horror movie like that, it's always satisfying to see like, oh man, this, this character, they really want to get out of this low podunk town and they're going to make it. They're really going (laughs) to make it. They just had a kiss with this person. Oh, well, it's also really satisfying at that point if they don't make it and they get Mm. murdered before they can do it. That, because that kind of stuff um, works really well. If you want to keep those traditional stakes, like the, you can die, um, and, and the story can still move on and it still feels satisfying for everybody while still having the, the narrative thematic portions and character arcs. I mean, I, if you watch some good slasher films, you, you can find, um, you can find some of those tropes in there. I think horror movies in general are yeah. good for that. If, if the best horror movies are the ones where like, for me anyway, just being in the horror movie or file that I am is like, okay, like let's, let's be killing characters. Let's not be stingy. Um, <laughs> And, and make it meaningful and, and, and fun and entertaining and everything. But then there's like some um, 
you know, there's some emotional investment or arc to to your final girl or your or your yeah. survivor character, whoever it is. Like in, in Nightmare on Elm Street, Nancy eventually decides she's going to take matters into her own hands and she's going to fight Freddy on her terms. And she finds power. Um, and, you know, in Hellraiser, Kirsty is not only dealing with the Cenobites, but dealing with this really messed up mm-hmm. family dynamic. Um, and so it's very much about this really sordid history that this family has. Um, and how Kirsty reacts to that is instrumental and integral to the to the story that's being told. I just watched uh, Wally's Wonderland, and in that game, Nicolas Cage um, plays a min-max character who was put in a uh, standard horror film, and it, it, it's hilarious. That's the one that's kind of like Five Nights at Freddy's, yeah, right? It, yeah, it, it is brilliant, but he's basically the overpowered character. The GM's like, okay, you're a regular person and I want you to be here and you need to face these things. He's like, I'm going to make someone who's all combat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I heard, I haven't seen that, but uh, I saw uh, the Scaredy Cats review of it and I thought it sounded so funny. Actually, one thing though I would like to say too about um, traditionalist games versus story games, well, narrative games. One thing I also find with traditionalist games is it's very focused on minutia. So this is the specific spell I can cast. This is the specific attack I can do. This is the specific power I have. Like in a Thathanorn's Ragnarok, you have very, very specific powers that do very, very specific things. And the neat part about that is you can collect those essentially and kind of use these abilities where narrative games tend to be more broad strokes. So when I had designed Vanaguard, in Vanaguard, you don't worry about specific spells or abilities the player kind of narrates what they believe their character would have. So there's still rules and stuff, but it's kind of more open to interpretation. The player has more control to kind of like make up what they can do uh, in a very specific set of parameters. So I find a lot of narrative games kind of lead more to improvisation and kind of almost like a fairy tale like feel mm. where, um, or like a mythology feel where um, traditional games are kind of more about being in sort of the thick of it and slugging with very specific um, tools. Yeah, it, it like like Craig said at the beginning too. It is a weird. There's debate on what 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 counts as a narrative game, yeah. what counts as traditional, and whether or not those two categories even mean anything is. I like I I did like Craig's definition though. Yeah, like, it was a good definition. If you were going to define it, I win the definition game. <laughs> if you were going to define it, I would say that that that's a that's a good way to do so. But I think as a designer, don't don't get mm-hmm. too hung up on like how how would this game be categorized. Um, just know that if you are setting up like the the kinds of stories that you want to tell, or that you, the kinds of games I should say, I'm, I like telling stories in my games. Mm-hmm. You can tell what side of the coin I would be on if I had to. Oh, I love Meredith's games. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, like, think about what you want people to be doing at the table and design around that. And you, you will be on a good path. Yeah. Getting, getting an idea for what you want. Like uh, Jason um, from Genesis of Legends games had the best piece of advice where he said, make a mission statement for your game. And make sure everything you're doing is following that. Yeah. Yep. I like that. Making a mission statement for, yeah, I like that actually a lot. <laughs> the mission statement. Well, that way too, like you can come up with a really, really, really awesome mechanic. And then it turns out it doesn't really, it's a cool mechanic. It just doesn't fit what you're trying to do. So don't try to shoehorn it in. Uh, right. You can use it for another game later on. Yeah. It might be, it might be the perfect fit for a game that does something a little different. Yeah. Don't, don't throw it out, but don't be afraid to edit it out. Put it in a notebook, set it aside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like when I did, um, it was interesting too, because sometimes you'll realize you're missing something. Because when I was doing, uh, making Vanaguard, I had a bunch of runes on the story cards, the chapter cards, and I only used them for um, character leveling. And I didn't use them for anything else. And when I was playing the game, I felt it was missing something. And then I realized, wait, I need to use the runes on these cards more because they're there and I'm always using them. So I developed a really cool mechanic around that. But sometimes if you feel it's missing something, take a look at what's always on the table and then kind of match for that. Uh, one one um, 
thing to consider too, just like toward the end of this, I, I said it probably doesn't help to like think about how your game would be categorized, but after you're done, it is a little helpful to think about that mm-hmm. because depending on where you are selling your game, uh, there are going to be different expectations mm-hmm. with the audience. Um, a narrative style, like small, like what you might call like a lyric game, for example, uh, they they do better on itch than they do on drive-through RPG. Mm. I feel like the audience on drive-through RPG in particular, they are looking for more. They are looking for a game that has way more traditional elements. Mm. So if you are doing something like that's super out there, super different, um, much more narrative uh, focused, and and um, really not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but like you're you're doing things that are not what you could categorize as traditional at all you might find you get some reviews from people that say this wasn't a game and it's yeah. <laughs> and it sucks but there are there are certain expectations that that your audience and where you're selling the game um that they, they are going to um even if you are very upfront with it they're they're going to come and they are going to comment yeah and also if you're looking to collaborate with people or do rpg work make sure you re- you look at what they're actually doing uh before you throw a pitch like you know i wouldn't go to someone who's doing golden sky stories and say here's my um gritty horror game that i want to publish under you guys they might be like no right <laughs> yeah you okay yeah you wouldn't take <laughs> you wouldn't take your power by the apocalypse game to someone who does a lot of dccc stuff yeah Did i put too many c's in there whatever (laughs) (laughs) well and it's it's useful to know you like have a have a handle on all that once the you know you you know where the game design is Mm -hmm. and everything um whether it's completely written or not when when you come to the point of like a patreon or crowdfunding Mm -hmm. um and knowing what to pitch to yeah yeah um you know if if your game is more very narrative oriented and it's going to take uh you know the idea is to take characters down this very emotional journey of whatever type that might be Mm -hmm. um you know, center that in the in the Kickstarter page. Make sure that people, when they read, it, you know, in those first three paragraphs of the Kickstarter page, they know that oh, this is a game about, you know, um, overcoming childhood fears. If that's what you know the game is, mm. um, and it's it's less about well, like oh, you're you're fighting monsters, but what are you really doing? Mm. You know, you're really coming to grips with your your you know long held childhood fears, and that's what the game focuses on. So people won't come in and be like. You know, I wanted to find some monsters and there's all this, you know, touchy feely stuff that I'm <laughs> well, not interested they're in. They're making me feel things. Why? <laughs> it, 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 like, it's interesting too, because, like, for example, say I was pitching the next Star Wars game and I made a combat system was incredibly lethal where you needed armor. That's not Star Wars. You couldn't reproduce the scene where Luke is standing in the middle of the hallway firing at stormtroopers with that system because he would just be like Mulanex. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good point. That's a really good point there. Yeah. Like the new Avatar game. Can you imagine if that was just all about murdering people? (laughs) And for for anybody who says, well, Rogue One was a war movie and everybody died. Well, they all died at emotionally important moments. Um, So it it, it still is. um... And also uh, they weren't (laughs) covered from head to... Everyone wasn't covered from head to toe in armor. It wasn't a... No, like it'd be like, say... Say you decide to use cyberpunk specifically for Star Wars, you could theoretically do it. But if you put so much emphasis on the gear, then that's not cyberpunk where, well, that's not Star Wars, where say you wanted to use cyberpunk for, say, Appleseed, where it's all very much about various cyborgs and various pieces of equipment. Like the artist is known for drawing really, really good tanks and weapons and armor. Then yeah, use that for that because that's what people are expecting. Well, like a detective noir book where, you know, you don't want a system where if you're doing a detective noir book where someone gets a jump on like Jimmy Dick, the detective, and goes, hold it right there, see? And if Jimmy Dick can survive the gunshot wound easily, that system's not going to work because he'll go, oh, get out of here, knock the gun away. I'm not worried. That's um, the, a really good example of that is Cthulhu Confidential, mm-hmm. where your it's not going to be fun to die in the middle of the mystery. It's a one-on-one mm-hmm. game. So you have, you have a GM and you have a player and that's it. If that player dies, it's not going to be fun because then they're done with the mystery and it's basically ruined because mm-hmm. you can't play that mystery again and 
go through all the clues and steps. The, yeah. the, the process of finding it is what's fun. So instead, the mechanics are consequences that happen to your character um, and things that could eventually lead to the character's death, but not until the story is resolved. And I, I loved how that game did that. Mm. Uh, I, 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 I want more people to oh. play that with me. <laughs> Actually, I, I just got the perfect example. Imagine the new Avatar game with Legend of the Five Rings. <laughs> that would be... <laughs> like, Ag shows up, death. <laughs> yeah, just, just maybe not that. <laughs> not for a Nickelodeon game. <laughs> Well, this was a, oh. this was a ton of fun. I I, I, <laughs> I like uh, it. <laughs> um, I those those two topics to me they they feel so related to me since you know mm-hmm. the style of, of of a session in particular and the style of a game in particular can can be so mm-hmm. so tied up with each other. But Chris, thank you, thank you for joining us today. Well, I'm glad I could. Thank you for inviting me. Um, would you like to tell everybody where they can find you or find your stuff? Um, look up uh, Chris Chalice on itch.io or RPG drive Uh You'll see like uh, some fun games that I've set up there, both for Pendle- on RPG drive through for Pendle Haven Press and Bridge, some of my own stuff. Uh, yeah, just look that up and that's where I am. Um, you can find me at... Uh, wannabegames.com and wannabe games everywhere on itch and drive through rpg and you can find me at uh, nerdburgergames.com um, games are also at drive through rpg.com and i am at nerdburger craig on the twitter um, playtesting is underway for secrets of the vibrant isle um, which is what jess was talking about playing um mm. i've played and- it twice now i want to play it again i i really <laughs> i really like it it's like my style of <laughs> Uh, it's a solo fantasy rpg um where you're exploring a magical wonderful island with some um you know nasty dark things too um Mm. but it's yeah it's it's fantastical um and it's playtesting and with any luck there will actually be a kickstarter before the end of the year as as long as the playtesting goes well (laughs) (laughs) and uh we will see you back here next time bye everybody take care folks